0: From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Farming, according to poet Brett Bryan, is a profession of hope. On this week's episode, we'll introduce you to sons and daughters of the soil who are living their dreams on the land. We begin in St. Tammany Parish with Monica Bourgeois and Neil Gernon, who are busy reimagining a Louisiana winery. They recently purchased Ponchatrain Vineyards in the town of Bush and are setting out to create some, well, as Neil says, great juice at affordable prices. And when it comes to juice, Jeff Brown and Donald Vanderwerken of J.D. Blueberry Farms can help you with that unsweetened blueberry juice is just one of a myriad of products they've created to utilize their short but delicious annual crop. We'll visit them on their farm before sitting down with Philip Jones, sixth generation chairman and CEO of Jones Dairy Farm in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. The traditional sausage recipe created by its forebearer Milo C. Jones, in 1889 is still used today. It may surprise you to learn that it's been a favorite on Louisiana breakfast tables for almost a century. We're celebrating America's family farms on this week's Louisiana Eats. Monica Bourgeois and Neil Gurnan know there's a lot more to a successful wine business than just growing grapes. The Louisiana-born wine lovers met while working in the New Orleans hospitality industry. They gained retail experience managing bottle shops before moving on to wholesale wine distribution, forming close friendships with California vintners along the way. Together, Monica and Neil identified a void in the wine business. They began to imagine a way to combine great blends, fun packaging, and what they call great juice at reasonable prices. The result was Vending Machine Wines, a small-batch wine company they founded in 2009. Though Vending Machine Wines is based out of Napa, California, the New Orleans couple operated from their native Louisiana, a state not exactly known for its winemaking. But when they learned that Louisiana's only premier winery, Pontchartrain Vineyards, was for sale, their ambition grew. Hello? Hi! Monica, is it you? It's me! It you? <laughs> Located on 13 acres of gently rolling hills in the rural North Shore town of Bush, the newly named Wildbush Farm and Vineyard is Monica and Neil's latest wine-related investment.
1: So this is our actual winery, and we have the tanks here that we hope within the next couple of years we fill up with grapes that we're gonna have to be purchasing um, from other states, and maybe some Louisiana vineyards if they have some fruit for us.
0: Embracing their new roles as farmers and makers, the couple is now overhauling their 13-acre property, rooting out old vines and replacing them to create what they hope will be a perfect location for Louisiana winemaking. So
1: these are our 1800 blueberry plants and man, you know, the weeds grow about as fast as you uh, yeah, they do. You pull them up. So, and I'm trying not to use chemicals, right? So, right. this is going to be a very labor intensive project, but a project of love we're going to have really delicious i think our goal is to make some sparkling blueberry wine these are um, rabbit eye blueberries which are pretty specific to our area Um, and so we want to infuse those with some of the grapes and things like muscadines you know people either love muscadines or muscadine wine or hate muscadine wine or have never had muscadine wine it's a very specific sort of flavor so if we can take some blueberries, let's just add all this really, you know, beautiful blueberry fruit, and sort of do co-ferments and different co-ferment blends. Co-ferment with grapes. With so grapes. we want
2: to try to push the envelope of what wine is, because everyone thinks of wine is just grapes. But we want to push it where we can use the, the blueberries and the grapes together, co-ferment them, and make a wine together in unity. And also, we, we're going to have bees, so we might throw honey in there, you know
1: yeah. what I mean? So yeah.
0: I in addition to the wine they hope to create from their labors, Monica and Neil see an opportunity to update the grounds to better cater to crowds. They're looking to add a ping pong table and a projector for nighttime film screenings. And every spring and fall, they'll be hosting a concert series in the vineyard's fields called Jazz in the Vines.
1: Train Vineyard started this tradition 23 years ago and they started with the spring concerts and they would get local regional musicians to come and play and everybody comes out, we have food trucks and we have the bar open for wine and people bring, they bring their fest chairs and they bring tables and they bring picnics and some people bring candelabras, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> but because we're out in Bush, which is, you know, pretty rural, Yeah. you can see every single star in the sky and it's just amazing, oh. it, is, it is unlike anything I've had in my experiences in Louisiana. You know, you feel like you're just at this different place. It's so quiet. It's so pretty and you just hear this band and you have your little setup, and everybody's dancing. You know, it's like a little mini jazz fest. It's, uh-huh. uh, it's really a really beautiful experience.
0: After spending some time with Monica and Neil on their new farm and vineyard on the North Shore, it became clear to me these two know their way around a grape. But how did this New Orleans couple get here? To learn the full story, we invited them into our Louisiana Eats studios. I asked how the two became entranced by wine and how it led to their first business venture, their small batch wine company, Vending Machine Wines.
1: Well, Neil really led this wine obsession. He was the wine buyer for Dickie Brennan's um, bourbon house when we met. And I was working at Mr. B's Bistro, and I was there as a hostess at the time, eventually moved into being the bartender, but that was also through Neil's passion of wine. Um, Yeah, I was drinking just like most people drank at the time, inexpensive wines that had a good little label uh, label on them and a little sticker bio or a rating or something like that, you know. And Neil sort of said, that's, that's not how you buy wine or find wines. But yeah, he, I always say he kind of screwed up back then because he started introducing me to Barolos and really high-end, beautiful wines. And I fell in love instantly and was no longer a cheap,
2: date. Um, Yeah, we both started off in restaurants here in New Orleans, and, um, and then we kind of went into, you know, I think I was a sales rep, and Monica went into running a little bottle shop, and then in 09, we decided we had so many great relationships in Napa and in Oregon, really,
1: So we met Christopher Van Driesh, whose family has White Rock Vineyards, and it's in Stag Sleep in Napa. Mm. And um, he was married to a local girl um, named Sarah. And we just formed this really strong relationship. He was making wines off of his vineyard. His brother was the vineyard manager. His dad was running Mm. the tasting room and the back operations. And Christopher was making the wines. And we loved what he was doing. He was making very Burgundian and... French-style wines in general. His cabs were like Bordeaux, you know, and his Chard, Chardonnays were like Burgundies. And, and we thought, this is unique. We had been selling a lot of high-end apple wines for a long time, and none of them had resonated with us like these because you know napa has a a pretty consistent flavor profile and christopher's were not that and um we just sort of said you know christopher we love what you do we have ideas we want to make some wines that are unique we've been in this business a long time and we feel like there's something missing in the space you know some really unique blends um, a little louisiana flair and it was great. You know, our relationship, our partnership started there, and we started talking to him about what we could um, make off of his family's vineyard that would be uh, unique to us. And so our first wine that we came up with was a wine called Double Shotgun. And we, Neil and I love the underdog varietals. So we love Cabernet Franc, and we love Petit Verdot. And these are grapes that are 3%, 5% in Bordeaux blends. And we really thought they were such beautiful grapes. We wanted to give them their own platform. And so we were like, let's do a 50-50 Cab Franc Petit Verdot. Well, we made it 50-50. And he was just like, okay, I got to tell you guys, this is this is great.
0: How in the world did you come up with this name, yeah. Vending Machine Wine?
2: Um well, vending machine wines is 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 kind of like our idea is that you can get anything out of a vending machine. So it makes our umbrella basically unlimited to make anything, any crazy thought we have. We have no walls in front of us to do it. Um, the The labels of our wines we find are very, hey, look at me, like candy wrappers in a vending machine. You know, because in a vending machine, the, the products are kind of competing to say, yo, you know, come come check me out, right? You know, there's a lot of Easter eggs in our labels for vending machine. I mean, our Chardonnay is called Lula's Revenge. It's L-O-U-L-A, so it's Louisiana abbreviated twice. And the revenge is how we come back to our way of life no matter what hits us. Um, you know, double shotgun isn't about the ch ch weapon It's about the architecture of our homes here, right? Um, anyway, it was funny because when we first started, you know, we were making this wine that, you know, we knew the shard would do well and the Cab would do well, but we didn't know how a double shotgun would be you know embraced yeah but we sold out (laughs) we sold out really fast in this town I mean and it was like you know the thing that made me realize okay it wasn't just friends buying wines from friends just to you know okay that's my buddy Um, they would reorder so that's when we realized okay we we're we're we have something here because it wasn't like like you know a buy because the label looks cool and we can get into that too but uh, you know it, it was more of a for us exciting that oh my god they ordered a case and they ordered another case a week later and they ordered another case the week after that so we're like okay the wine's not i mean we were worried that we'd have to drink 50 cases of each of these wines right we weren't worried uh, we, well we, we said were happy we made to the
1: wines <laughs> so we love them if nobody buys them we can drink them everything's fine and so you know?
2: yeah so every time we make anything what you know we've never really taken money out of vending machine it's always gone back into developing more diverse wines than what we already were doing and to you know make more of some of the stuff that got more popular right yeah. which um which is oddly enough our biggest selling wine is probably the weirder blend the weirdest blend that we do you know for vending machines
0: Coming up next, our conversation with Monica Bourgeois and Neil Gernon continues as we discuss their most recent venture, Wild Bush Farm and Vineyard on Louisiana's North Shore. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets, tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Do your red beans cook up so creamy because they're cooked in grandma's bean pot? Or is it her wooden spoon that makes them so special? Camellia Brand wants to honor your family's culinary keepsakes during their upcoming centennial. Share your treasures by emailing images and stories to me at poppy at and we'll make sure you're part of the celebration. If you're just joining us, We've been speaking with Monica Bourgeois and Neil Gurnon, founders of the small-batch wine company Vending Machine Wines. The New Orleans couple has been making wine in Napa Valley since 2009, operating the business from their native Louisiana. Their newest venture, Wild Bush Farm and Vineyard, finds the two overhauling 13 acres of a former winery in the rural North Shore town of Bush, Louisiana. While St. Tammany Parish might not seem like wine country, Monica and Neil are excited about their new roles as farmers and vintners in their home state. In Louisiana, we can't grow grapes here. Like, what's up with that? (laughs) Explain yourself.
1: Yeah, we're so excited, and you're absolutely correct. It is very, very difficult to grow grapes in Louisiana um, but last year, I went out to California to make some wines with Christopher for a vending machine. Um, so I went for a harvest and stayed and made, made wines. And I kind of came back just with this really, a whole bunch of excited energy that I was, the whole thing going out there, being a part of the process, more involved in the process. Um, you know, I sort of just started thinking, I want to do more of this. And, you know, Neil was so excited and we saw a uh, write up in the Times Picayune about post-train vineyards being for sale. Somebody forwarded it to us and we sort of like, let's go, let's go check it out. Let's go see what it looks like out there. And we went out there. It was it was so beautiful. It was a little bit of a mess, but it was so beautiful and we just sort of were like, can we do, you know, can we do this? Can we actually do this? And I said, well, you know, we might be able to do it if we get away from trying to make traditional style wines out here. You know, if we plant some native fruits, if we we can do some grapes, um, we can definitely do muscadines. They love it in Louisiana, you know? And then we started introducing the idea of like pawpaws, mayhaws, persimmons, pear certain pears that grow well here, certain apples that grow well here. And fruit wines I really believe are sort of the the future.
2: You know, as experimental as we've been with vending machine, we are really gonna push envelope of what wine is with wild bush. I mean we're gonna Literally, you know, put some fruit wines t- with no sugar added with grape wines and, you know, and maybe even honey from bees that we have on the property. You know, it's really going to be a fun, experimental, just like no rules, which has kind of been our thing for a long time. Yeah, so it, the only
1: it, rule is going to be to try to make some tasty adult beverages that work with who we are, where we are, the foods we eat and things like that. Yeah.
0: What year do you think that we can be looking for these? How long will that take? My God, you just planted the blueberries. I
1: know, I know. It's going to be at least four or five years before we are producing wines from the vineyard. Um, in the meantime, though, we're purchasing fruit, um, and we will be making the wines from the, that fruit in the winery there. So we're going to start to experiment Bringing in those fruits from um, other local producers, and you know, just trying to keep it as local as possible. The first year, this year, we are sort of splitting off some of what we do with vending machine into Wild Bush. It's our it's our best way to do it.
2: Um, yeah, that being said, you know. The first wine we're releasing, you know, has nothing to do with vending machine. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's an Oregon wine. Yes.
0: <laughs> and so you brought along a bottle of this new release? We yeah. did. So this is an unreleased new release Correct. that we're going yeah, to preview right. here? Yes, that Future wine.
1: hand-labeled lovingly. Yes.
0: On the cork of every vending machine wine bottle is the phone number of co-founder <laughs> Neil Gernon.
2: The phone number is my phone number because we do weird things. So I think it's only fair if you have a question to be able to reach out to me. Um, I have not gotten anything inappropriate.
1: For a while now.
2: Well, okay, <laughs> that's fair. I
1: mean, you definitely have, but I it's did, been a while. <laughs> it has been a
2: while. Mostly it's people at restaurants taking pictures of the bottle with the food they're eating, which makes me so happy.
1: Yeah. Um, it, is, it, is, it is funny and exciting, but Neil also gets 2 a.m. texts. The phone goes
0: ding, and we're like, oh, somebody's... What sort of missives do you get at 2 a.m., Neil?
2: Usually just kind of drunk texts <laughs> saying, I'm drinking your wine and it's great, you know. And that makes yeah. me feel good because I'm helping them feel themselves. Yeah. You know I mean? They're having a good time, right?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. In the early days, when we were a bit younger, you know, in 2009, 2010, and you would get those texts. You'd be like, well, where are you at? Let's go, oh, meet Well, and they, what? Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> I would call, and I tr- my thing was if someone called, I tried to keep them on the phone as long. Where they were like, man, this person's a lunatic, you know. <laughs> um, one time, I te- someone texted me. They're like, we're at August. We're enjoying your wine. I'm like, I'm a block away. They're like, come on, and they bought me dessert.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, this has been such a good time. Definitely. We're coming back to visit again soon. Great. Jeez, yes, that'd be awesome.
1: This has been such a pleasure. Thank yes, you so thank much you for so having much.
0: us. Monica Bourgeois and Neil Gurnon of Vending Machine Wines and now Wild Bush Farm and Vineyard. Their biannual concert series, Jazz in the Vines, continues through the end of October. To learn more, visit wildbushfarmandvineyard.com. An extended version of this interview is available on our website, poppytooker.com. Donald Werken and Jeff Brown have been in the blueberry business since 2004 when they founded JD Farms in the small town of Poplarville, Mississippi. Taking advantage of the region's acidic soil, perfect for cultivating blueberries, they soon became regular vendors at the Crescent City Farmers Market, selling two products, fresh blueberries and frozen blueberries. Since then, their output has grown dramatically. For one, Jeff and Don expanded their farm to cultivate tea. But when it comes to blueberries, today, in addition to blueberries by the pint, they sell all matter of blueberry products, ranging from juice, tea, and coffee to popsicles, jams, and jellies. The Louisiana Eats crew paid a visit to Don and Jeff's farm one hot and humid June morning the two farmers joined us outside their blueberry fields, which they were in the process of harvesting. From where we stood, the towering bushes obscured the horizon.
3: Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, the J of JD Farms.
0: I'm
4: Don Vanderwerken, the D in J and D Farms. <laughs> <laughs> this is Charlie. We are in Poplarville, Mississippi, the capital of blueberries from Mississippi and uh, one of the leading states in the Mid-South for the production of blueberries. Just like in Ponchatoula for strawberries, this region, the soil and the microclimate make it conducive for blueberries.
0: So, how big is your blueberry operation?
4: Uh, This farm here has approximately 16 acres of blueberries. The farm is a total of 48 acres here, but we also custom harvest another 20 acres down the road.
0: What's the yield from your acreage?
4: Typically, we can get anywhere from uh, 1,500 to about 2,000 pounds per acre, when we're being very conservative. On some varieties, we can go as high as 3,000 pounds per acre. So if you're looking at our fields now, we're standing in the fields, we have several different varieties of blueberries. What we grow here are rabbit eye varieties and these are all mainstay varieties for the area Um, I'll also point out that maybe 10 miles down the road here is the USDA blueberry research center where all the subtropical or tempered climate blueberry research goes on there they came up a variety called Biloxi and the reason why we have blueberries year-round is because of that variety developed right here we can't really grow it here because of they, it's mostly a high desert, but if, when you're getting blueberries in December and January, it's because of the research that was done right here in Poplarville, Mississippi.
0: And then where are those berries coming from? Peru, Mexico, Morocco, Argentina. And they're growing that Biloxi variety?
4: Mm-hmm, and they continue to do research on new strains, new varieties uh, for our
0: area and for other, other folks too. You know, I'm a city girl who never even saw a blueberry bush before, I'm ashamed to say. They're beautiful, and they're they're taller and bigger, and I, I think older maybe than I anticipated. Would you show me the ins and outs of blueberry picking? Sure. So
3: here you see a, one of our plants. This is probably one of our premier or our climax, which is uh, one of our standard blueberry plants in in this area of Mississippi. So you see this is all blue. So you would just roll this on your hand and you can drop it, let it drop down into the bucket. Uh, then you see something that's over here that's that's also blue, but then you see a pink. So you're going to be careful about how you pick this one because you don't want that non-ripened fruit to roll down. So you very carefully pick those around that one, as opposed to, if you if you just do this and pull it down, of course the unripened fruit's going to fall down too. See that one just. And
4: yeah, you can notice all the berries that hit the ground from the rain and the storm, and it's unfortunate, but that's part of the, the whole process, you know. The fields are a little messy right now because we're harvesting. But normally, you know, everybody asks me, what's it like running a blueberry farm? It's almost like running a golf course. You want to keep the grass really cut short. And we spend a lot of money on cutting grass here. Take
0: us through how your season goes.
4: Well, typically our harvest crop is usually maybe seven to eight weeks long, but generally speaking, you start as soon as you harvest for the next year. So by July 4th, all the bushes you see here, you commented how tall they are, they'll all be trimmed to about three to four feet.
0: Right now they're, they must be five feet or a little better because right. many of them are over my head.
4: Yeah, you can see the new growth there and we want to get that off. And the reason why we want to get the new growth off is for next year's crop. So by July 4th, we'll bring in machinery and we'll trim all these bushes. But for right now, Uh, The way we harvest berries, we harvest with a machine, and the machine you're standing in front of here is called the Latau
0: Harvester. Dude, dude, that's incredible. Standing at two stories tall, the Latau Harvester is a wheeled platform that has enough height to straddle a row of blueberry bushes. As it moves, the machine shakes the bushes, sorts the berries, and delivers them to the crew. Configured correctly, it can cover a lot of acreage in a short time, eliminating the need for hand picking altogether. Technology in agriculture
4: is amazing, uh, and you know, there's no way we can harvest as much as we do without the machine. Years ago, we used to hand pick, but labor is very expensive, so you still have to have a three or four man crew uh, on top. You know, we've been here 20 years, and we've probably had every neighborhood kid work at the blueberry farm this some of them is their very first job so uh, after we um, harvest the berries we go into the packing
0: shed for final processing don and jeff led us past the picking machine and other farm gear to a garage and finally a large processing center charlie you can not come in charlie come on The indoor space was cool and filled with empty plastic lugs. The 20 to 30 pound containers used to transport the blueberries. In the center of the room sat equipment for processing, sorting and conveying their growing harvest. So the berries as we were talking about
4: get picked by the picker and then are brought in and usually depending on how much humidity there is in the air will cool them here and then we'll process them and this machine you see in front of you is an air blower and it blows the leaves and the sticks out of it and then uh, we have a soft machine here that pushes out the softs then we have a group of uh, usually young teenagers their first job sit here and they call sorting the berries pulling out the reds and greens or sauce whatever then we put it back in the lugs and then we'd look at what our future orders are, our anticipated orders, and then we either put them in pints or the little clamshells you're used to seeing in grocery stores or we put them in the green containers, which we are known for in the farmer's market in the Crescent City farmer's market. We also do other things in here to kind of push berries. Um, we have frozen bags, we freeze berries, and that's what you kind of hear in the background over there. We have several lugs of frozen berries and we'll take that and put it into frozen bags. And then we also, uh, I think, what, two years ago, we started juicing. So we take berries and we have a juice press over there, which we're about to expand again, where we uh, basically uh, press the berries and we sell blueberry juice, blueberry lemonade.
0: Let's see, we got dried berries, we got jam, we've got popsicles, we've got pies, we've got muffins. We've, it goes on and on and on. During blueberry season, do you all ever rest? <laughs> we dream in blue. <laughs> yeah. <So.
4: laughs> well, it's it's. We always say that. Uh, um, how many years have you been growing blueberries? And we say it's been twenty separate years. It's never the same. It's always a different challenge. Weather, employees, uh, insects, fungus, disease, etc. Hurricanes, uh, pandemics. Uh, economic crisis you know so we've always managed and that's I think the important part here is is staying to your base and you know giving the locals what they want and if you're an entrepreneur or if you're a small business person and you want to start your own business in the food business get into the farmer market they will be honest with you now trust me we have tried other things and it's been a complete disaster but we didn't have so much invested. We didn't have a storefront. We didn't have a lot of employees. We, but you had customers at a farmer's market, and they come in and they tell you, and just like our coffee success, they're telling us, oh, it should need this, or it needs that, or you didn't do this right. And so it's a great test market for younger people. You know, our little farm here, we're, we have a million dollars invested in this. And between the tractor, the equipment, the infrastructure, the plumbing, the sewer, and in fact, we were talking to some of the other farmers too, you know, it's just not throwing seeds in the ground and watching it grow. There's a lot of other infrastructure you've got to have. This is, it's not for the faint-hearted. That's why you don't see people jumping into it. But over time, we've conquered little battles and you know, every day is a different challenge. And for me personally, I mean, how I kind of deal with it, you know, because it can get very stressful for, and agriculture is a lot of stress. I watch a lot of YouTube, and I watch all the other farms out there, and I always think I had a bad day or I work hard. I, I, you just can't imagine what some of these other farms are doing. It's farmer
3: therapy for us because we see that because every day, every day is different based on the weather, uh, what what you're dealing with, what type of production you're doing, uh, and so we watch these uh, YouTube videos and we see that they're all their issues, and <laughs> we say, okay, I feel a little bit better about how my day went today. So.
4: It's just absolutely just amazing. and there's and a lot of them are young people, it gives me encouragement that other young people are going to get into it.
0: Donald Van and Jeff Brown speaking to us on their blueberry farm in Poplarville, Mississippi. You can find Don and Jeff at the Crescent City Farmers market when blueberries are in season. Right now, you'll find them selling their teas as well as frozen blueberries and other products grown and produced on their land. To learn more about their operation or to mail order their products, visit jdfarms.us. rare is a family farm in America today? Stay tuned and we'll explore that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry. Their new stuffing mix brings the flavor to your holiday table, available in herbal or cornbread. And their brown gravy and marinade have your turkey covered. Louisiana Fish Fry because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans' French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain, the delicious Tammany-taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Fall on Louisiana's North Shore brings outdoor festivals and lots of holiday events. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. How rare is a family farm in America today? You know that red barn and silo on those greeting cards we all grew up with? That image may no longer qualify as a true snapshot of American farming. Many trace the loss of family farms back to 1970, when Nixon's Secretary of Agriculture, Earl Butz, famously proclaimed to America's farmers, get big or get out. The rapid rise of industrial farming put many in America's heartland out of business. Iowa alone has lost more than a third of their farms since then, and let's not even discuss the chemical inputs required for that type of production. Take a look at the numbers. In 1935, there were 6.8 million family farms in America. Last year, there were a mere 2 million. With the push for large-scale production, today, almost 50% of that output comes from less than 3% of those family farms. It's the little guys grossing less than $350,000 annually who seem to be working hardest for the least income and their future doesn't look very bright. Over the next 20 years, the U.S. Department of Agriculture estimates that 70% of those farms will change hands as the next generation lacks the necessary skills or interest. There is some good news, though. After decades of steady decline, the small family farm is up by about 4%, thanks to brave individuals like Monica and Neil of Wildbush Farm and Vineyard and our friends Donald and Jeff at J.D. Blueberry Farms. We're always happy to champion those brave heroes here on Louisiana Eats. So get out and meet the farmers at your weekly farmer's markets. And while you're at it, thank them for being such a valuable part of America's food scene. They are the source of so many great Louisiana eats.
5: I'm Philip Jones, sixth generation chairman and CEO of Jones Dairy Farm.
0: For over 130 years... Jones Dairy Farm of Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin, has been producing a variety of pork products like sausage and bacon for people across America. Sixth-generation family member and current CEO Philip Jones joined us to share the story of his family business, beginning with his forebear, Milo C. Jones, who founded the company in 1889.
5: Well, Milo was the second generation. His father decided that the Wisconsin landscape was better for agriculture than Vermont, where he came from. That was the impetus for him to relocate his family here in Fort Atkinson in uh, 1837, 1838. His son, Milo C. Jones, has the honor and credit of founding the sausage business is we know it, although they did sell sausage locally and it was always made from his mother's recipe. So it's a little confusing. It's five generations incorporated, six generations in the business on a local basis. And, And that was the impetus for where we are today, making breakfast sausage, bacon and ham.
0: Well, Milo's story is so interesting to me because the whole sausage tale is really sort of born out of making lemonade from lemons because it was health problems that made him venture into that business. Am I correct? That's
5: absolutely correct. He had... What was deemed at the time rheumatoid arthritis, and he had very severe uh, limitations to his mobility, which did not uh, allow him to continue the agriculture and farming that he had done all of his life. After, I believe, seven years of being incapacitated, he thought, what am I going to do? And so he used his head. He said, I'm going to continue. We're going to make our mother's sausage recipe, which, again, they sold locally. But now this became the real driver of the company, which was breakfast sausage. I sent you an ad, Poppy. I've been looking through it. That was from 1908. And I was telling you, I knew that we had some documentation that we had retailers in New Orleans who were carrying the product. And so we were shipping product to Louisiana in 1910. Now, that was before refrigeration. Now, we only processed between the end of September and the beginning of, I think, May. And we processed during the colder months. But they were able to, to mail order and then ship out you know, individual orders to consumers all over the country. And New Orleans is part of it. It's been down in the bayou. Our products have made it down there for quite a while. Even though we're not a big brand down there, we do get all across the country.
0: Your sausage is made today exactly like your great, 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 I don't even know how many to say, grandmother Sally Crane Jones made in the 1830s. It's nothing more than salt, pork and spices. There's nothing artificial. There's no other preservatives.
5: It's one of the biggest gifts she could have given us because today's consumers appreciate the fact that we never changed. And the awareness of today's consumer is such that we have credibility because we never changed we didn't all of a sudden become all natural it's been that way for a long long time you know a simple recipe that's time honored and the key is don't screw it up
0: you know most people who grow up in a big family business like that you would expect them to go off and get perhaps a business degree a master's degree in business but Philip, you trained as a chef to prepare for your life at Jones Dairy Farm. What's up with that?
5: Well, I broke the mold. I I did not follow in my uh, forefather's footsteps, and they, they did all of that. They had degrees, law degrees, business degrees. I mean, they were very, very capable and accomplished, and uh, that served them very well. I was more interested in having fun in college and and realized that uh you know if i have a a vested interest in it i i I better either pay attention or figure out what i want to do and uh quick story I, i left college after one semester and i said this really isn't what i wanted to do and i went out and i got a job for minimum wage as a dishwasher knowing that I wanted to work and become a chef. So I did that. And I did it for almost 12 years. And I am very close to the industry and the profession today. And it has given me an appreciation for food that has been very, very relevant for the company over the last 20 some odd years. It's not the background I would recommend, but it worked for me and it, it's worked for the company, I don't think anybody could have written a, a, a better script.
0: With the company starting seven generations ago with a Milo, are you expecting the eighth generation Milo to be sitting in your seat one day?
5: One can only hope. He's got to want it. He's got to earn it. Uh, wouldn't that be a wonderful and fitting tribute to you know, have the family continue on. But this business isn't for everybody. You have to want to do it. There's no room for kind of sort of thinking about maybe I'd like to do it. No, you're, you're all in. And um, it takes special people. And uh, if that happens to be my grandson, that would thrill me.
0: Any American business founded over a century ago has inevitably had its ups and downs over the years. Companies had to weather two world wars, a Great Depression, and countless other challenges history threw at them. I asked Philip how Jones Dairy Farm was able to respond to uncertain times.
5: You know, there there are just circumstances that... Uh, um, you know whether it's the depression the second world war um in my time i i took over the company 10 days before 9 11 and then we had the great recession and then we've had COVID, and there are no playbooks for something like that except you can draw on the past and try and learn something first of all you will survive keep a cool head and, and but you've got to be entrepreneurial you've got to be creative and I think that's one of the hallmarks of the family is that they've always adapted and responded to what the consumer wants. And I think that's one of the greatest traits of any business. We can all make the greatest product in the world, but if nobody wants to buy it, it's not, it's not worth very much. If people appreciate and understand what you do and they come back and buy it again. And then they say, well, I remember eating that as a kid. And it tastes just as good today as it did then. It's one of the greatest compliments. So as the recipe has not changed and the entrepreneurial spirit has not changed, technology has changed and and allowed us to do things differently and expand our distribution, so on and so forth. I marvel at my family's creativity and how they made a business that is still vibrant and growing today that was started well over 130 years ago.
0: That was Philip Jones, sixth generation chairman and CEO of Jones Dairy Farm. For this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, producers Blake Longline and Steve Himmelfarb, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.